Then the gods hurled a fiery mountain on Kryn, and Tarsus was forever changed. Her glittering bay vanished, the water receded, her ships were stranded in the mud and muck of a wrecked harbor. Tarsus looked in the mirror and saw her beauty ruined, her rich clothes soiled and torn, her jewel-like gardens withered and dead. Unlike many who suffer tragedy and adversity and have the grace and dignity and courage to rise again, Tarsus let tragedy sink her. Wallowing in self-pity, she blamed the knights of Salamnia for her downfall and drove the knights from their homes into exile. She blamed wizards, too, and dwarves and elves, and anyone who was not one of us. She blamed the wise men and women who had come there to study in the ancient library of Kristan, and she drove them out. She left the library in ruins and forbade anyone from entering it. Tarsus turned mean and mercenary, covetous and grasping. She took no joy in beautiful things. The only beauty in her eyes was the glitter of steel coins. Her seaport was gone, but she still maintained overland trade routes and used her wiles to foster trade with her neighbors. At last, more than three hundred years later, Tarsus could look in the mirror once again. She would never regain her former beauty, but she could at least dress herself up in her borrowed finery, rouge her cheeks, and paint her lips. Sitting in the shadows where no one could see her clearly, she could pretend that she was once more Tarsus the Beautiful. The city of Tarsus had been guarded by a twenty-foot-high stone wall, pierced by towers and gates at intervals, and by the sea. The wall ended at the harbor where the sea took over. Where the sea ended, the wall resumed. The wall remained, but the sea's absence left an unfortunate gap in the city's security. A reduction in the population caused by the departure of sailors and shipbuilders, sailmakers and merchants, and all those who had depended on the sea for their living, meant a drastic drop in tax revenues. Tarsus went from wealth to poverty literally overnight. There was no money to build a new stretch of twenty-foot-high wall. Five feet was about as much as could be managed. Besides, as one Tarsian lord said gloomily, they didn't need protection anyway. Tarsus had nothing anyone wanted. That had been years ago. Tarsus was more prosperous now. The Tarsians had heard rumors of war in the north. They knew Salamnia had been attacked. Snooty knights serves them right. And they had heard that the elves had been driven out of Qualinesti. What could you expect of elves, simpering cowards, all of them? There was talk that Pax Tharkas had fallen. Pax what? Never heard of it. Tarsus paid little heed to any of this. With prosperity had come complacency. Tarsus had been at peace forever, and her people saw no threat on their horizon, so why waste money on something as dull and prosaic as a wall when they could build fine houses and showy municipal structures? Thus the five-foot wall remained. The wall had two main ironclad gates located in the north and the east. Derek was to enter by the northern gate, where traffic was deemed to be heaviest. Aaron rode in through the eastern gate, and it fell to Brian to try to make his way on foot through the gate at the southern part of the city, the harbor wall, as it was known. Being the weakest part of the city's defenses, the knights assumed the harbor wall would be the one most closely guarded. Derek's choice of Brian for this route was something of a backhanded compliment. He cited Brian's calm and unruffled demeanor, his quiet courage. 
He also mentioned that, of the three of them, Brian looked the least like a knight. Brian accepted the truth of Derek's statement and was not offended. Although of noble birth, Brian had been raised to hard work, not privilege, as had the wealthy Derek. Brian's father had not inherited his bread, he'd been forced to earn it. An educated man, he had been hired as Derek's tutor, and he and his family were given housing at Castle Crownguard. Aaron, son of a neighboring lord, was invited to come study with the other boys, and thus the three friends became acquainted. Brian's lineage was not as long or as noble as Derek's and Aaron's, and Brian felt the difference between them. Aaron never alluded to it or thought anything about it. If Brian had been a fishmonger's son, Aaron would have treated him the same. Derek never mentioned his background, never said an unkind or uncivil word to Brian, or demeaned him in any way. Yet, perhaps unconsciously, Derek drew a line between the two of them. On one side was Derek Crownguard, and on the other side the son of the hired help. When Derek said that Brian didn't have the look of a knight, Derek wasn't being arrogant. He was just being Derek. The day was sunny and cold, the air calm. Brian walked across the plains at an easy, measured pace, taking note of all who came and went. Each gate was guarded by two or three men, and these were all members of the Tarsian Guard. He saw no signs of draconians. Brian approached the gate cautiously, searching the shadows of the tower for anyone taking an unusual interest in people entering the city. A few loiterers were standing about, all of them bundled up against the cold. If one was a draconian, he would be difficult to spot. The Tarsian guard stood huddled near a fire in an iron brazier and seemed reluctant to leave it. Brian continued walking toward the gate, and no one challenged him. The guards looked him over from a distance and didn't appear much interested in him, for they continued to hold their hands over the blaze. When Brian reached the gate, he came to a halt and looked at the guards. Two of the guards turned to a third. Apparently, it was his turn to deal with those who wanted to enter. Annoyed at being torn away from his warm place by the fire, the guard pulled a fur cap down about his ears and walked over to Brian. Name? the guard asked. Brian Connor, said Brian. Where from? Salomnia, said Brian. The guard would be able to tell as much by his accent. The guard scowled and shoved the fur cap away from his ear to hear better. You're not one of them night fellows, the guard demanded. No, said Brian. I am a wine merchant. I heard there was the possibility of obtaining some very fine wines in Tarsus these days, what with the fall of Qualinesti and all, he added nonchalantly. The guard frowned and said loudly, No elf wine here. Nothing like that going on in Tarsus, sir. In a low voice, the guard added, I've a cousin deals in that sort of hard-to-find merchandise. Go to Merchant's Row and ask for Jen. She'll fix you up handsome. I will, sir. Thank you, said Brian. The guard gave him directions to find Merchant's Row and said, Remember Jen, and told him he could enter. Brian tried, but the guard continued to stand in the gate, blocking his way. Brian wondered what was going on, then he saw the guard surreptitiously rub his thumb and two fingers together. Brian reached into his purse and brought out a steel coin. He handed it to the guard, who snapped his hand shut over the coin, and then stepped to one side. Have a pleasant stay in our fair city, sir, said the guard, as he touched his hat. Glad that the scarf over his face hid his smile, 
Brian walked through the gate. He headed toward Merchant's Row, just in case the guard was watching him. The streets were crowded, despite the cold, with people going to work or to market or simply out for a walk now that the snow had ceased falling. Once there, he'd make his way to the upper city, which, according to the aesthetic Bertram, was the last known location of the lost library. Brian glanced back over his shoulder occasionally to see if anyone was following him, but as far as he could tell, no one seemed the least bit interested in him. He hoped his companions had entered the city with similar ease. The three knights met up with each other in the old part of the city. Derek and Aaron had each gained access to the city without difficulty, though Derek had discovered, as had Brian, that entry came with a cost. The guard at the main gate had demanded two steel in payment, terming it a head tax. Aaron had not been taxed at all, so perhaps there were still honest people in Tarsus, or so he said. He was the last to arrive. He'd stopped on the way to refill his flask, and he was in a much better mood. Both Aaron and Derek had seen people standing about the gates, but they might have been nothing more than the usual idlers curious to see who came and went. That led them to talk of Sturm Brightblade and his strange companions. I never understood why you dislike Sturm Brightblade so much, Derek, Aaron said, as they sat down on a crumbling garden wall to eat bread and meat, washed down, for Aaron's part, with brandy wine, or why you opposed his candidacy for knighthood. He did not have the proper upbringing, said Derek. You could say that about me, said Brian. My father was your tutor. You were raised in my father's house among your peers, said Derek, not in some border town on the edge of nowhere among outlandish folk. Besides, Brian, your father was a man of honor. Angriff Brightblade was honorable. He was just unfortunate, said Aaron, shrugging. According to Lord Gunther, Derek snorted. Gunther was always an apologist for the Brightblades. Would you seriously recommend for knighthood a man who never knew his father? If Angriff was Sturm's father, you have no right to say that, Derek, stated Brian angrily. Derek glanced at his friend. Brian was generally easygoing, slow to anger. He was angry now, and Derek realized that he'd gone too far. He had, after all, impugned the reputation of a noblewoman, and that was very much against the measure. I didn't mean to imply that Sturm was a bastard, Derek said gruffly. I just find it damn odd that Sir Angris suddenly packed off his wife and child to some place where he knew they would never have contact with anyone from Salamnia, as if he were ashamed of them. Or as if he were trying to save their lives, suggested Aaron. He offered the flask around, got no takers, and so enjoyed it himself. Angriff Brightblade had made some very bad enemies, poor man. He did what he thought was best by sending his family away. I think it is to Sturm's credit that he made the journey all the way back to Salamnia to find out what happened to his father. He came to find his fortune, said Derek scornfully, and when he discovered there was nothing left, he sold the family property and went back to live in his tree house. You put everything into the worst possible light, said Brian. Sturm sold the family property to pay off the family's debts, and he went back to Solace because he found a harsh welcome in Salamnia. Give it up, Brian, said Aaron, grinning. Sturm Brightblade could be another humor, and single-handedly drive Queen Tachesis back into the abyss, 
and Derek would still think he was not worthy of his spurs. It all goes back to that feud between their grandfathers. That has nothing to do with it, said Derek, growing angry in his turn. Why are we even discussing Sturm Brightblade? Because if there is a chance that he is in Tarsus and he needs our help, we are bound to help him, said Brian. Whether he is a knight or not, he is a fellow Salamnik. To say nothing of the fact that our enemies are eager to get their scaly hands on him, added Aaron. The friend of my enemy is my friend. Or is it my enemy? I can never remember. Our mission comes first, said Derek sternly. And we should end this conversation. You never know who might be listening. Brian glanced at their surroundings. The old city was a dump. The pavement of the street was cracked and broken, littered with chunks of stone and rubble. Mounds of rotting leaves lay in odd corners of broken stonework, all that remained of abandoned buildings that were either wholly or partially demolished. Large oak trees growing from the crevices in the middle of the shattered streets were evidence that this part of the city had been lying in ruins for many years, perhaps ever since the cataclysm. Unless the dragon armies have found a way to recruit rats, I'd say we're pretty safe, commented Aaron, dislodging one of the creatures with a chunk of stone. We haven't seen another living thing in the last hour. Brian stood with his hands on his hips and looked up and down the dusty street. I think Bertram sent us on a wild kinder chase, Derek. There's no sign of a library anywhere around here. Yet this is valuable property, Aaron remarked. You'd think the good people of Tarsus would either rebuild or at least clear out the rubble and turn it into a park or something. Ah, but then that would mean they'd have to remember what they once were. Remember the beauty, remember the glory, remember the white-winged ships, and Tarsus can't let herself do that, said a woman's voice coming from behind them. The knights grasped the hilts of their swords, though they did not draw them, and turned to face the eavesdropper. The woman's voice was high-pitched, bright and effervescent, and her looks matched her voice. She was slender, short, and brown-skinned, with a pert smile and russet-colored hair that fell about her face and shoulders in a wild and haphazard manner. Her movements were quick and quiet, and she had a wide, ingenuous smile, enhanced by a roguish dimple in her left cheek. Her clothes were plain and nondescript, and appeared to have been put on without much thought, for the color of her blouse clashed with her skirt, and her thick cloak was at odds with both. Judging by her speech, however, she was well-educated. Her accent was Salomnic. She was somewhere between twenty and thirty years of age, or so Brian guessed. She stood in the shadows of an alleyway, smiling at them, not in the least disconcerted. Derek made a stiff bow. I beg your pardon for not giving you proper greeting, mistress. He spoke politely because she was a woman, but coldly because she had been eavesdropping on them. I had no idea of your presence. <laughs> oh, that's all right, said the woman with a laugh. You must be Sir Derek Crownguard. Derek's jaw dropped. He stared at her in astonishment. Then he frowned. I beg your pardon, mistress, but you have the advantage of me. Didn't I introduce myself? I'm so forgetful. Lilith Hallmark, she replied and held out her hand. Derek regarded her in shock. Well-bred Salomnic women curtsied. They did not offer to shake hands like a man. He eventually took her hand in his, to do otherwise would insult her, 
but he did not seem to know what to do with her hand and released it as soon as possible. Would you by any chance be related to the hallmarks of Varus? Aaron asked her. I'm Sir Eustace's daughter, Lilith said, pleased. His fourth daughter. Derek raised an eyebrow. He was certainly not having much luck with knight's daughters these days. First the Uthmatar woman in Palanthus who'd turned out to be a thief. Now this young woman, the daughter of a knight, walking about in garb she might have stolen from a kender and talking and acting as boldly as a man. How is my father, sir? Lilith asked. I have the honor to report that the last time I saw him your noble father was well, said Derek. He fought bravely at the Battle of Vingard Keep and left the field, only when it was apparent we were heavily outnumbered. <laughs> Dear old Daddy, said Lilith, laughing, I'm surprised he had sense enough to do that. Usually he stands around like a big dummy just waiting to get hit on the head. Derek was shocked beyond words at such disrespectful talk, especially from a woman. Aaron laughed loudly and shook hands jovially with Lilith and Brian kissed her hand, which caused her to laugh again. He noted as he held her hand in his that the index finger and thumb were stained dark purple, and there were similar purple splotches, both faded and fresh, on her woolen blouse and her skirt. Brian let go her hand reluctantly. He thought he'd never seen anything so enchanting as the dimple in her left cheek. He wanted to make her laugh again, just to see the dimple deepen, see the gold flecks in her hazel eyes. Derek frowned at his cohorts, considering they were encouraging bad behavior. He had to speak to this lady, but he would speak coldly to express his disapproval. How did you know me, Mistress Hallmark? he asked. Bertram sent word to me to keep watch for a Salamnic knight searching for the fabled Library of Criston, Lilith answered. You're the first, last, and only knights I've seen in these parts for years, and then I heard you mention Bertram's name so I assumed you must be Sir Derek Crownguard. I did not give the aesthetic Bertram leave to proclaim our coming, said Derek stiffly. Indeed, I ordered him to maintain the strictest secrecy. Bertram didn't tell anyone except me, and I haven't told anyone else, Sir Derek, said Lilith, her dimple flashing. It's a good thing he did. You would have spent years searching for the library and never found it. You're an aesthetic, Aaron guessed. Lilith winked at him, something else highly improper for a well-bred Salamnic woman. Do you gentlemen want me to take you to the library? If it's not too much trouble, mistress, said Derek. Oh, it's no trouble at all, sir, returned Lilith, folding her arms across her chest. But in return, you must do something for me. I need a favor. Derek scowled. He did not like this young woman, and he certainly did not like being blackmailed into serving her. What would you have us do, mistress? Lilith's dimple vanished. She seemed troubled and suddenly motioned them to come near, and when she spoke, she kept her voice low. Something is very wrong in this city. We've heard rumors. Who is we? Derek interrupted. Those of us who have the interests of the world at heart, Lilith replied, meeting his gaze steadfastly. We're on the same side in this war, Sir Derek, I assure you. As I was saying, we've heard rumors that draconians have been seen inside the city walls. The three knights exchanged glances. Outside the city walls, too, said Aaron. So the rumors are true. You've seen them? Lilith said, looking grave. Where? 
On the road to Tarsus, they were camped out by a bridge. They were watching those who crossed. That makes sense, said Lilith. Someone is circulating a bounty list for the assassins of Dragon High Lord Verminard. I happened to get hold of a copy. She reached to her waistband and drew out a document similar to the one they had taken from the Draconians. I've been searching for a person a long time, only to find him at last on this list. I want you to apprehend him and bring him to me. Lilith held up a warning finger. You must do this without anyone's knowledge. You have the wrong people, mistress, said Derek. You should speak to the local thieves' guild. They are experts at kidnapping. I don't want him kidnapped, and I certainly don't want thieves to get hold of him or the draconians. Lilith flushed in her earnestness. He carries something of great value, and I'm very much afraid he doesn't appreciate its importance. He might give this object to the enemy out of sheer ignorance. I've been trying to think of some way to get hold of him ever since I saw his name on this list. You gentlemen are a godsend. Give me your word of honor as knights that you will do this for me, and I will show you how to find the library. That is blackmail, unworthy of the daughter of a knight, said Derek, and Brian, regretfully, couldn't help but agree with him. This was all very vague and shadowy. Lilith was not daunted. I think it's unworthy of a knight to refuse to help a knight's daughter, she said spiritedly. What is the object this person carries? Aaron asked curiously. Lilith hesitated, then shook her head. It's not that I don't trust you. If it were my secret, I would tell you, Sir Knight, but the secret is not mine to share. My information came from one who would be in great peril if he were discovered. He's not supposed to be talking to us. He risked a great deal revealing this much, but he's worried about this valuable object and also the person carrying it. Derek continued to look grim. Which person on this bounty list do you want us to find? Brian asked. Lilith put her finger on a name. Out of the question, barked Derek. Derek, said Brian. Brian, said Derek, glowering. I'll just leave you gentlemen to discuss this among yourselves. Lilith walked off out of earshot. I do not trust this hoyden, said Derek, even if she is the daughter of a knight, and I have no intention of kidnapping a kender. She is playing some sort of prank on us. Derek, we've tramped up and down this blasted street most of the morning, and we haven't seen hide nor hair of a library, Aaron said, exasperated. We could spend the rest of our lives searching for it. I say we agree to do this little errand of hers in return for her helping us locate the library. Besides, if the Draconians are keen to get their claws on the Kender, that alone should give us reason enough to want to save him, Brian pointed out. He was one of those who killed the High Lord, apparently along with Sturm. He might be able to tell us where we could find Sturm, said Aaron. Brian shook his head signaling to Aaron that this argument was the last one to use to induce Derek to go along with Lilith's plan. Quite the opposite, in fact. For his part, Brian was eager to help Lilith regardless, if only to see her smile again. Derek was obviously not happy about the situation, but he had to face facts. They could not find the library, and with draconians lurking about the city, there was no time to waste. He called to Lilith. We will undertake this task for you, mistress. Where do we find this kender? I have no idea, she said brightly. 
Seeing Derek's brows come together, she added, My fellow aesthetics are keeping an eye out for him. They'll let me know. In the meantime, I will show you the library. See there? I can be honorable, too. What are draconians doing in Tarsus, mistress? Brian asked. She was leading them down an alleyway that appeared to be a cul-de-sac with no library in sight. Lilith shook her head. Maybe nothing more than searching for these people. We don't know. Have you reported this to the authorities? We tried, said Lilith, making a face. We sent a delegation to see the Lord. He scoffed at us. He claimed we were imagining things. He termed us rabble-rousers, said we were trying to start trouble. Lilith shook her head. There was something odd about him, though. He used to be a gracious man, always taking his time to listen to supplicants, but when we saw him this time, he was brusque, almost rude. She sighed deeply. If you ask me, trouble's already started. What do you mean? We think the enemy has him in their control. We can't prove it, of course, but it would make sense. They have some sort of hold over him. That's the only reason our Lord would allow those monsters to even get near our city. The alley ran between a large building which had fallen into such decrepitude, it was hard to tell that it had once been an elegant mansion. The walls looked as if they would tumble down if someone breathed on them, and they kept clear, though Lilith assured them the building had been standing for hundreds of years. She continued down the alley pausing every now and then to glance over her shoulder to make sure they were not being followed. Mind the sewer grate, she said, pointing. The bolts are rusty, and it's not to be trusted. You could take a nasty tumble. Aaron, who had been about to step on the grate, hopped nimbly over it. Why don't the Tarsians clean all this up? he asked, gesturing. It's been over three hundred years, after all. At first they were too busy just trying to survive to rebuild what was lost, Lilith answered. They took the bricks and granite and marble blocks from ruined structures and used them to construct houses. I think they meant to rebuild their city at first, but what with hardship, danger, and people leaving the city to find work other places, there was always a lack of money and, perhaps more important, a lack of will. In later years, as they grew more prosperous, they must have considered rebuilding this part as they did other parts, said Brian. I saw some magnificent structures on my way here. Lilith shook her head. It's because of the library. This part of the city came to be associated with those the people blamed for their woes, wizards, clerics, scholars, and Salamnic knights, like yourselves. The citizens feared that if they rebuilt the library and universities, troublemakers like us would come back. I'm surprised they didn't destroy the library, said Aaron. The aesthetics feared the worst. When word of the trouble occurring in Tarsus reached our order, they were deeply concerned. They sent a group to the city, a dangerous journey back then, what with the lawlessness in the land, with instructions to either save the books or, if they were too late, salvage what they could. When they arrived, the aesthetics found that the clerics of Gilean working here prior to the cataclysm had received warnings that something terrible was about to occur. The clerics could have left Crin safely with the clerics of the other gods, but they chose to remain to guard the books. Fortunately, the library had been built below ground, so that when the fiery mountain struck, the library was spared. All they had to fear now was men. When the mobs came to burn and loot the library, they found the aesthetics guarding it. Many of them were slain in the battle, 
but they kept the mobs at bay until they could seal up the library entrance. After that, they concealed the entrance so that no one could find it or open the door unless they knew the secret. The books have thus remained safe all these centuries, guarded by those who loved them. Such as yourself, said Brian admiringly. He took hold of her hand, indicating her ink-stained fingers. Lilith blushed, but she gave a matter-of-fact nod. Brian kept hold of her hand, as if by accident. Lilith smiled at him. The dimple flashed, and she gently slid her hand out of his grasp. What book or reference are you looking for, Sir Brian? Perhaps I can help you find it. I'm familiar with most of what's down here, though not all, mind you. That would take several lifetimes. Derek gave Brian a sharp glance, silencing him. It is not that we do not trust you, Mistress Hallmark, Derek said coolly, but I believe we should keep this information to ourselves. We might put you in danger otherwise. Just as you choose, said Lilith. She came to a halt. Here we are. A blank wall, Aaron stated. They walked through a shadowy archway that led to a dead end a wall made of multicolored stones, rounded and weathered and set in mortar, buttered up against a hillside, covered over with long grass. The Library of Cristan, said Lilith. She placed her boot on a flagstone in front of the wall and pressed on it. To the knight's amazement, the solid stone wall gave a sudden jolt and slid off to one side. It's not stone at all, exclaimed Aaron, reaching out his hand to touch it. It's wood. Painted to look like stone. He laughed. What a masterpiece! It fooled me completely. The knights looked back down the alley and saw it in a far different light. The alley is part of the library's defenses, said Brian. Anyone trying to reach the library has to walk down it. And the sewer grate I almost stepped on. It's a trap. Aaron regarded Lilith with more respect. You and your aesthetics appear ready to fight and die to defend the library. Why? It's only a bunch of books. A bunch of books that contain the bright light of wisdom of past generations, Sir Aaron, said Lilith softly. We fear that if this light is quenched, we will plunge into a darkness so deep we might never find our way out. She shoved aside the wooden door, painted to look like stone, Behind it was another wooden door, this one of very old workmanship. Carved into the wood were the scales of balance resting on a book. The symbol of Gillian, god of the book and keeper of the balance. Lilith reached out her hand to touch the scales. You speak of him with reverence, said Brian. Do you believe the gods have returned? Lilith opened her mouth to reply, but Derek cut her short. We have no time for such nonsense. Please proceed, mistress. Lilith gave Brian a sidelong glance and a secret smile. We will speak of that later, she said. She pressed on one of the scales twice, then the other scale three times, then pressed four times on the symbol on the book. The second door slid open. A long staircase extended straight down into darkness. A lantern hung on a hook on the wall near the door. Lilith removed the lantern and opening a glass panel, lit the stub of a candle inside. The flame burned clear. She shut the glass panel carefully and lighted their way down the stairs. The air grew warmer. The stairway smelled of old leather and sheepskin and the dust of time. 
At the bottom of the stairs was another door, again decorated with the scales and a book. Lilith pressed on each again, only in a different order. The door slid into the wall. She entered the room, holding her lantern high. The room was enormous, long and wide. It extended far beyond the reach of the lantern light, and it was filled floor to ceiling with books. Shelves of books lined the walls. Shelves of books marched in long rows across the floor, row after row, on and on into the darkness. It was a veritable forest of shelves, and the books on those shelves were as numerous as the leaves on a forest of trees. The three knights stared at the books in awe, mingled with growing dismay. Are you sure you don't need my help, Sir Derek? Lilith asked serenely. 4. A Hopeless Search The Riot Kendersnatching There are thousands, Aaron gasped. Thousands and thousands, said Brian in hopeless tones. Derek turned to Lilith. There must be a catalogue of the books, Mistress Hallmark. The aesthetics are known for their meticulous record-keeping. There was, said Lilith. The books were catalogued and cross-referenced by title, author, and content. You're speaking in the past tense, Aaron noted ominously. The catalogue was destroyed, Lilith told them gravely. Who would do such a thing? Why? Brian asked. The aesthetics themselves destroyed it. Lilith gave a deep sigh. Right before the cataclysm, during the time that the king-priest handed down the Edict of Thought Control, he threatened to send his enforcers to the library to search the catalogue of books so that his enforcers could remove and burn all those deemed a threat to the faith. The aesthetics could not allow this, of course, so they burned the catalogue. If the enforcers wanted to know what was in the books, they were going to have to read them, all of them. And so it seems are we, said Brian grimly. Brian pointed to Lilith's ink-stained fingers. Not necessarily. You've been recreating the catalogue, haven't you, Mistress Hallmark? I wish you would all just call me Lilith. And yes, I've been trying to recreate the catalogue. I haven't gotten very far. It's an enormous task. Derek, we must tell her why we're here, murmured Aaron. Derek was determined to keep the orb a secret, and for a moment he looked obstinate. Then his gaze went to the shelves of books, shelf after shelf after shelf of books. He pressed his lips together a moment, then said tersely, We're looking for information concerning dragon orbs. All we know for certain is that they were created by wizards. Lilith gave a low whistle. Wizards, eh? I don't recall coming across any information on dragon orbs, but then I haven't started work on the books that deal with magic. Derek and Brian looked at each other in dismay. Aaron, shaking his head, reached for his flask. I can show you the section where books on the arcane are shelved, Lilith offered. They're all the way in the back, I'm afraid. The shelves were stacked closely together. The aisles between them were so narrow that occasionally Aaron had to turn sidewise to fit. They moved cautiously, for the lantern light didn't go very far. Brian fell over a crate in the dark and almost knocked down an entire shelf. Sorry about the mess, Lilith said as they edged their way around several shelves that had toppled over, spilling their contents onto the floor. I haven't started to work on this section yet, and I didn't want to disturb anything. Though it may not look it, 
There is order in this chaos, which reminds me, gentlemen, Lilith added in severe tone. If you take a book down from the shelf, please put it back in exactly the same place you found it. Oh, and if you could make a note of the contents, that would be a big help to me. By the way, how many different languages do you speak? Salamnik, Derek answered impatiently, not understanding the reason for the question. And common, of course. Lilith paused, holding the lantern high. Nothing else? Elvish? Curian? The knights all shook their heads. Ah, that's a shame, she said, biting her lip. We Salamniks assume everyone in the world speaks our language, or if they don't, they should. Wizards come in all races and nationalities. Their writings are in many different languages, including the language of magic. Given the way our people feel about wizards, I doubt you'll find many books written in Salamnic. This just keeps getting better and better, Aaron remarked cheerfully. We could take weeks to find a scroll on dragon orbs, only to discover it's written in some obscure dwarvish dialect, and we can't understand a word. Here's a toast to our quest. He took a pull from his flask. Don't borrow trouble, Derek admonished. Fortune might smile on us. Lilith clapped her hands together. By Gillian's book, Fortune has smiled on you. I just thought of something. That kender you're going to rescue might be able to help you. A kender? Derek repeated in disgust. I most seriously doubt it. How could he help us? asked Brian. Lilith flushed. I can't tell you that, but he might. The kender again. When do we go in search of this kender? Derek asked in resigned tones. Whenever my friends tell me he's arrived in Tarsus, if he comes here at all, I'm just hoping he will because of that list. Lilith hiked up her skirts to climb over another shelf. This way, I'll show you where to look, and I'll give you what help I can. The night spent two days in the library in what proved to be a frustrating and fruitless search. They decided against returning to their camp, for that would mean passing in and out of the city gates and once inside, they deemed it wise to stay, particularly if there were draconians about. Lilith suggested they sleep in the library, an ideal hiding place, since no one in Tarsus ever came there. Brian took the two horses to a stable near the main gate, in case they had to make a hasty departure. Lilith brought them food and drink. They made their beds on the floor among the shelves. Dusk to dawn, they searched through books, manuscripts, treatises, Scrolls, collections of notes, and scribbles on scrap paper. They sat at long wooden tables, hemmed in and blocked off by a maze of shelves that Aaron swore shifted position when they weren't looking, for if they left, they always seemed to lose their way back. They worked by lantern light, for the library had no windows. Lilith pointed out the old skylights located high in the lofty ceiling that had once let in the sunlight. The skylights were covered over with earth and debris and rubble. We thought it best to leave them hidden like that, she said, and added wistfully, Someday, perhaps, we can uncover them and light will once again shine on us. Now is not the time, however. Too many people in this world consider knowledge a threat. The library was not only dark, it was eerily silent. All sound was absorbed and swallowed up by the books. The world could end in an explosion of fire outside, and they would be none the wiser. I tell you honestly, 
said Aaron on the morning of the third day. I'd rather be fighting death knights. He opened a book, dust flew up his nose, and he gave a violent sneeze. An entire legion of death knights with a hundred drunken dwarves thrown in. He glanced dispiritedly through the discolored pages. This appears to have been written by spiders who dipped their legs in ink and ran across the vellum. There are pictures of dragons, though, so this might have something to do with orbs. Lilith peered over his shoulder. That's the language of magic. Put it here with the other books on dragons. She shoved her hair out of her eyes, leaving a smear of dirt on her forehead. Be sure to mark its place on the shelf. This book also has pictures of dragons, said Brian, but the pages are so brittle I'm afraid they'll disintegrate if I continue examining it, and I can't read it anyway. Lilith took the book from him, handling it carefully, and added it to the small pile. Perhaps there is a wizard in the city who could translate this writing for us, Brian began. We're not telling the wizards about this, Derek stated flatly. There aren't any wizards in Tarsus anyway, said Lilith, or at least any who'd openly admit to it. We'll wait for the kender. I'm not promising anything, mind you, but— Lilith! A male voice called out her name. Are you here? Derek rose to his feet. Don't be alarmed, said Lilith hurriedly. It's one of the aesthetics. She raised her voice. I'm coming, Marcus. She hurried off toward the front of the library. Brian, go with her, Derek ordered. Brian did as he was told, wending his way through the shelves, trying to remember the twists and turns that would take him to the front and not strand him on some remote literary island. He kept the light of Lilith's lantern in sight and eventually caught up with her. What's the matter? Don't you trust me? Lilith asked, dimpling. Brian felt his cheeks burn and was thankful it was so dim she couldn't see him flush. It's just... it might be dangerous, he said lamely. Lilith only laughed at him. A man stood in the doorway. He was wrapped up in cloak and scarves, and it was difficult to tell anything about him. Lilith hurried over to him, and the two conferred together in low voices. Brian hung back, though he knew quite well Derek had sent him to spy on her. The two didn't speak long. Marcus left, and Lilith came back to Brian. Her eyes were shadowed in the lantern light. She looked troubled. What's wrong? Brian asked. You should alert the others, she said. Brian gave a halloo that echoed off the walls and shook the dust from the ceiling. He heard Aaron swear and the sound of heavy objects falling. Lilith winced. Be careful! she called out anxiously. Oh, I'm all right, Aaron answered. Lilith muttered something, and Brian grinned. It wasn't the night she was worried about. It was her precious books. The kender is in Tarsus, she reported when Derek and Aaron emerged from the gloom into the lantern light. He and his friends entered the city through one of the gates this morning. They're staying in the Red Dragon, but there's going to be trouble. The guards at the gate saw that one of the men was wearing a breastplate with the markings of a Salamnic knight and reported him to the authorities. They've sent guards to the inn to arrest them. That would be Brightblade, said Derek irritably, and he is not a knight. He has no right to wear such armor. That's not really the point, Derek, said Aaron, exasperated. The point is that Brightblade and his friends are about to be arrested. And if the Draconians find out that these are the people they've been searching for... They can't find out, said Lilith urgently. They mustn't. They'll search the Kender's belongings, and they'll discover what he's carrying. You have to save him. From the Tarzian guards, in broad daylight? Mistress, 
I don't care what mysterious thing this Kender is supposed to be carrying. A rescue attempt would only end in our joining the Kender in prison, said Derek. My friends are going to create a diversion, Lilith said. You'll be able to grab the Kender in the confusion. Bring him straight here. I'll be waiting for you. Now hurry! She started to herd them up the stairs. How will we find this inn? Brian asked. We don't know our way around town. You won't have any trouble, she predicted. Keep to the main road out front. Go back through the central plaza the way you came. After that, just follow the shouting. Brian blinked and rubbed his eyes as he walked into the bright winter sunlight. He'd been living in the library in perpetual night, and he had no idea what time of day it was. From the position of the sun, he guessed it must be about mid-morning. The knights hastened along the main street as Lilith had told them, meeting no one until they came to the central plaza. Here they found crowds of people all in a state of excitement. Those who had been inside the shops and stalls were pouring out into the streets, while others were breaking into a run. The knights could hear a low roaring sound as of waves breaking on a shore. What's happening, my good man? Aaron asked, stopping to talk to a shopkeeper, gloomily watching his customers stream out of his store. Has the sea come back? Very funny, the shopkeeper growled. Seems there's some sort of riot going on over by the Red Dragon Inn. A Salomnic knight made the mistake of showing his insignia in our city. The guards tried to haul him off to the Hall of Justice, but they may not get that far. We don't take kindly to his kind in Tarsus. He'll get justice, all right. Aaron raised his hand to make sure the scarf he had wound around his nose and mouth had not slipped. A pox on all Salomnic knights, I say. I think we'll go have a look. Good day to you, sir. Here, said the shopkeeper, handing Aaron a rotting tomato. I can't leave the store, but throw this at him for me. I'll do that, sir. Thank you, said Aaron. The three ran off, joining the throng of people heading in one direction. They found their way blocked by people yelling insults and tossing the occasional rock. Judging by the craning heads... The prisoners were coming in their direction. Ryan peered over the shoulders of those in front of him and saw the small procession come into view. The Tarsian guards had their prisoners surrounded. The crowds fell back and grew quiet at the sight of the guards. There's Brightblade, all right, Aaron announced. He was the tallest of them and had the best view. And to judge by his ears, that man with him is the half-elf. There's a true elf and a dwarf. And that must be Lilith's prize kender. Where's the diversion? Brian wondered. We can at least get closer, said Derek, and they shoved their way through the mob that was milling about indecisively. The crowd had grown bored yelling at the night, and it seemed they might disperse, when suddenly the kender lifted his shrill voice and yelled at one of the guards, Hey, you, addle-pated pig-nut, what happened to your muzzle? The guard went red in the face. Brian had no idea what an addle-pated pig-nut was, but apparently the guard did, for he lunged at the kender, who dodged nimbly out of the guard's grasp and swatted him over the head with his hoopack. Some in the crowd jeered, others applauded, while others began throwing whatever came to hand—vegetables, rocks, shoes. No one was particular about his aim, and the Tarsian guards found themselves under fire. The kender continued to taunt anyone who caught his fancy— with the result that several in the crowd tried to break through the guard's defenses to get to him. The commander of the guard started yelling at the top of his lungs. The elf was knocked off his feet. 
Brian saw Sturm halt and bend protectively over the fallen elf, fending off people with his hands. The dwarf was kicking someone and punching with his fists, while the half-elf was trying desperately to make his way to the kender. Now, said Derek. He commandeered a gunny sack he found lying in front of a vegetable stand and shouldered his way through the crowd. Brian and Aaron followed in his wake. The half-elf was about to grab hold of the kender. Not knowing what else to do, Aaron tossed his tomato and struck the half-elf full in the face, momentarily blinding him. Sorry about that, Aaron said ruefully. Derek swooped down on the kender and clamped his hand over his mouth. Brian and Aaron grabbed the kender's feet. Derek popped the sack over his head and carried him, wriggling and squeaking, down the street. Someone yelled to stop them, but the knights had acted so rapidly that by the time those watching realized what had happened, they were gone. You take him, Derek shouted to Aaron, who was the strongest among them. Aaron tossed the kender over his shoulder, keeping one arm clamped over his legs. The kender's topknot had fallen out of the sack and straggled down Aaron's back. Derek ran down an empty side street. Brian came last, keeping an eye on their backs. With only a vague idea of where they were, they feared getting lost, and they made their way back to the main road as quickly as possible. The bagged kender was emitting muffled howls and wriggling like an eel. Aaron was having difficulty hanging on to him, and people were stopping to stare. Keep quiet, little friend, Aaron advised the kender, and quit kicking. We're on your side. I don't believe it, shrieked the kender. We're friends of Sturm Brightblade, said Brian. The kender ceased to howl. Are you knights like Sturm? he asked excitedly. Derek cast Aaron a stony glance and seemed about to launch into one of his tirades. Aaron shook his head at him. Yes, he said. We're knights like Sturm, but we're in hiding. You can't tell anyone. I won't, I promise, said the kender. Then he added, Can you take me out of the sack? It was fun at first, but now it's starting to smell of onion. Derek shook his head. Once we reach the library, not before. I've no mind to go chasing a kender through the streets of Tarsus. Not just yet, Aaron said conspiratorially. It's too dangerous. You'd be recognized. You're probably right. I'm one of the heroes of the Battle of Pax Tharkas, and I helped find the Hammer of Karas. When are we going to rescue the others? The three knights looked at each other. Later, said Aaron. We, uh, have to think up a plan. I can help, the kender offered eagerly. I'm an expert at plan thinking. Would it be possible for you to open a small hole so that I could breathe a little better? And maybe you could not jounce me around quite so much? I ate a big breakfast, and I think it's starting to turn on me. Have you ever wondered why the same food that tastes so good going down tastes really horrible when it comes back up? Aaron dropped the kender on the ground. I'm not going to have him puke on me, he told Derek. Keep a firm grip on him, ordered Derek. He's your responsibility. Aaron removed the bag. The kender emerged, red in the face from being dangled upside down and out of breath. He was short and slender, like most of his race, and his face was bright, inquisitive, alert, and smiling. He twitched a fur-lined vest and garishly colored clothes into place, felt to make sure his top knot of hair was still on top of his head, and checked to see that all his pouches had come with him. This done, he held out his small hand. I'm Tesselhoff Burfoot, he said. My friends call me Tass. Aaron Talbo, said Aaron, and he gravely shook hands, then offered his flask. To make up for the onion. Don't mind if I do, said Tass, 
and he took a drink and almost took the flask, quite by accident, of course, as he told Aaron in apology. Brian Donner, said Brian, extending his hand. Tass looked expectantly at Derek. Keep moving, said Derek impatiently, and he walked off. Funny sort of name, muttered the Kender with a mischievous gleam in his eye. Sir, keep moving. He's Derek Crownguard, said Aaron, getting a tight grip on the Kender's collar. Hmm, said Tass. Are you sure he's a knight? Yes, of course he is, said Aaron, grinning at Brian and winking. Why do you ask? Sturm says knights are always polite, and they treat people with respect. Sturm is always polite to me, said Tass in solemn tones. It's the danger, you see, Brian explained. Derek's worried about us, that's all. Sturm worries about us a lot, too, Tass sighed and looked back over his shoulder. I hope he and the rest of my friends are all right. They always get into trouble if I'm not with them. Of course, he added on second thought. My friends get into lots of trouble when I am with them, but then I'm there to help them out of it, so I think I should go back. The kender made a sudden jerk, gave a twist and a wriggle, and before Aaron knew what was happening, the knight was holding an empty fur vest, and the kender was dashing off down the street. Brian leaped after him and was finally able to catch him. Fortunately, Derek was far ahead of them and hadn't seen what had happened. How did he escape like that? Aaron demanded of his friend. He's a kender said Brian, unable to help laughing at the bewildered expression on Aaron's face. It's what they do. He assisted Tass in putting his fur vest back on, then said, I know you're worried about your friends, so are we, but we've been sent on a very important mission to find you. Me, Tass said, astonished. An important mission to find me, Tasselhoff Burfoot? There's someone who wants to meet you, I promise, Brian added gravely. On my honor as a knight, that when I have taken you to talk to our friend, I will help you rescue your friends. Derek's not going to like that, Aaron predicted with a grin. Brian shrugged. An important mission, breathed Tasselhoff. Wait until I tell Flint. Yes, sure, I'll come with you. I wouldn't want to disappoint your friend. Who is your friend, anyway? Why does he want to see me? Where are we going? Will he be there when we arrive? How did you know where to find me? We'll explain everything later, said Aaron. We have to hurry. Aaron took hold of Tass by one arm. Brian grabbed him by the other, and they hustled him down the street. Five. Magical glasses. The word chromatic. Love amid the dust. Lilith was waiting for them at the entrance to the library. Her face brightened when Aaron and Brian deposited the kender on the ground in front of her. You found him. I'm so glad, Lillis said, relieved. Tasselhoff Burfoot, said the kender, reaching out his hand. Lilith Hallmark, she returned, taking his hand in hers and pressing it warmly. I am so very honored to meet you, Master Burfoot. Tass flushed with pleasure at this. We should not be standing out in the open, Derek warned. Take him into the library. Yes, you're right. Come inside. Lilith led the way. The kender followed her delighted with the wonder of this unexpected adventure. A library! I love libraries. I'm not usually permitted inside them, however. I tried to visit the great library of Palanthus once, but I was told they don't allow Kender. Why is that, Lilith, do you know? I thought maybe they had made a mistake, and what they meant to say was that they didn't allow ogres, which I can understand, and I tried to crawl in through a window so as not to bother anyone at the door, but I got stuck, and the pathetics had to come help me. Aesthetics! 
Lilith corrected, smiling. Yes, them too, said Tass. Anyway, I found out the rule doesn't say anything about ogres, but it does say no kender. I'm very glad you admit kender. We don't, as a general policy, said Lilith. But in your case, we'll make an exception. By this time, they'd descended the stairs into the library proper. Tasselhoff stood quite still, staring around in awe. Lilith kept her hand on his shoulder. Thank you very much, gentlemen, for bringing him. And now, if you could excuse us, I must speak with Master Burfoot in private. Lilith added in apologetic tones. As I told you, this is not my secret. Secret? said Tass eagerly. Of course, mistress, said Derek. He hesitated, then added, You mentioned something about Burfoot being able to assist us. I will let you know if he can or not, Lilith assured him. That's part of the secret. I'm extremely good at keeping secrets, Tass announced. What secret am I keeping? Derek bowed in acknowledgment, then headed for the back of the library. Aaron and Brian accompanied him, and Lilith soon lost sight of them among the shelves. The sound of their footfalls grew muffled and faint, though she could still hear Aaron's laughter resounding through the building, shaking the dust from the books. Come, sit down, said Lilith, guiding Tass to a chair. She sat down beside him and drew her chair close to his. I have a very important question to ask you. The answer is very important to me and to many other people, Tasselhoff, so I want you to think very carefully before you reply. I want to know... Do you have with you the glasses of Arcanist? The what of who? Tasselhoff asked, puzzled. The glasses of Arcanist. Did this Arcanist say I took them? Tass demanded, indignant at the accusation. Because I didn't, I never take anything that's not mine. I have a friend, a very good friend, named Evenstar, who says that you found the glasses in the floating tomb of King Duncan in Thorbarden. He says you dropped them, and he picked them up and gave them back to you. Oh, Tass leaped up in excitement. You mean my special magical glasses for reading stuff. Why didn't you say so in the first place? Yes, I think I have them somewhere. Would you like me to look? Yes, please, said Lilith, alarmed at the Kender's cavalier attitude. But she reminded herself he is a Kender, and the gold dragon knew that when he allowed him to keep the glasses. I hope you haven't told anyone about Evenstar, said Lilith, watching in growing concern as Tass started upending his pouches and dumping their contents onto the floor. She knew Kender picked up all manner of various and assorted trinkets and treasures, ranging from the valuable to the ridiculous, and everything in between. But she hadn't quite realized the vast extent of a Kender's holdings until she saw it piling up on the floor. Our friend could get into a lot of trouble— if anyone knew he was helping us. I haven't said a word about meeting a golden, woolly mammoth, Tasselhoff replied. You see, we were in Duncan's tomb, my friend Flint and I, and there was this dwarf who said he was Karas. Only then we found the real Karas, and he was dead, extremely dead. So we wondered who the dwarf was, really, and I'd found these glasses inside the tomb, and I'd put them on, and when I looked through the lenses at the dwarf, he wasn't a dwarf, he was a golden, woolly mammoth. He gave her a pitiful glance. You see how it is. When I try to tell anyone that I met a golden woolly mammoth, it always comes out woolly mammoth. I can't say woolly mammoth. Ah, I see, said Lilith in understanding. 
the golden dragon had apparently found a way to keep even a kender's lips sealed on his secret, a secret he had since revealed, but only to the aesthetics. Many years ago, the good dragons had awakened to find their eggs had been stolen away from them by the dragons of Queen Tachesis. Using their eggs as hostages, the queen forced the good dragons to promise they would not take part in the upcoming war. Fearing for the fate of their young, the good dragons agreed, though there were some among their number who advocated strongly that this was the wrong course. Evenstar had been one of these. He had spoken out forcefully against such appeasement and had vowed that he would not feel bound by any such oath. He had been punished for his rebellion. He had been banished to the floating tomb of King Duncan in Thorbarden, there to guard the Hammer of Karas. Two dwarves, Flint Fireforge and Armin Karas, accompanied by Tasselhoff, had recently discovered the sacred hammer and restored it to the dwarves, freeing Evenstar from his prison. While in the tomb, Tasselhoff had encountered Evenstar, who questioned the candor about the situation in the world. What he heard greatly disturbed Evenstar, especially when he learned that an evil new race known as Draconians had appeared on Kryn. A terrible suspicion was growing in his mind as to the fate of the young metallic dragons. Even Star did not yet dare reveal himself. If the forces of darkness knew that a golden dragon was awake and watching the doings of the Dark Queen, she would send her evil dragons after him, and because he was isolated and alone, he would be no match for them. Thus he had found this magical method to make a kender keep a secret. The next time I looked through the glasses, we were in a great big hall I can't recall the name of, and the dwarves were fighting Dragon High Lord Verminard. Only he was supposed to be dead, so I looked at him through the glasses, and he wasn't Verminard at all. He was a draconian. Tass had plopped himself down on the floor and was sorting through his valuable possessions as he talked, searching for the glasses. Lilith realized in dismay that this search could take a considerable amount of time, since the kender could not pick up anything without examining it and showing it to her and telling her all about how he'd come by it and what it did and what he planned to do with it. Tess, said Lilith, there are some very dangerous people in the city who would give a great deal to find these magical glasses. If you think you might have left them back in the inn... Ah, oh, I know! Tasselhoff smacked himself in the forehead. I'm such a doorknob, as Flint is always telling me. Tass reached his hand into one of the pockets in his bright-colored trousers. He pulled out an assortment of objects, a prune pit, a petrified beetle, a bent spoon, which he said was to be used for turning any undead he might be lucky enough to encounter, and, finally, wrapped in a handkerchief embroidered with the name C. Majer, was a pair of spectacles made of clear glass with wire-rim frames. They're truly remarkable. Tass regarded them with fond pride. That's why I'm so careful of them. Uh, yes, said Lilith, vastly relieved. Does your friend want them back? Tass asked wistfully. Lilith didn't know how to answer. Evenstar had told Astinus, the master of the great library, to seek out the kender and make certain Tass had the glasses in his possession. The dragon had said nothing about taking the glasses away from the kender, nor had he said anything about the kender using them to help the knights or anyone seeking knowledge. As the follower of a neutral god, one who maintained the balance between the gods of light and those of darkness, Lilith was not supposed to take sides in any war. 
Her assigned task was to guard the knowledge. If this was done, if the knowledge of the ages was preserved, then no matter whether good or evil prevailed, wisdom's flame would continue to light the way for future generations. The king-priest, though he had revered Paladine, god of light, had feared knowledge. He feared that if people were permitted to learn about gods other than Paladine and the gods of light, they would cease to worship those gods and turn to others. That was why Paladine and the other gods of light had turned against him. Now Tachesis, queen of darkness, was trying to conquer the world. She also feared knowledge, knowing that those who live in ignorance will not ask questions, but will slavishly do what they are told. Tachesis was trying to stamp out knowledge, and Gillian and his followers were determined to oppose her. Where were the gods of light in this battle? Had they returned with Gillian? Did Paladine and the other gods of light have their champions? And if so, would they be like the king-priest? Would they want to destroy the books? If they did, Lilith would fight them as she would fight draconians or anyone else who threatened her library. Perhaps this was the reason Evenstar had turned to Astonis for help and not to Paladine, assuming Paladine was around. Evenstar distrusted Tachesis and her minions, yet he was not certain he could trust the gods of light. Now Lilith was confronted with the Kender, and although she considered herself open-minded and free from prejudice, she couldn't help but think the dragon might have chosen a more responsible guardian for such a valuable artifact. She considered it a major miracle the Kender had kept hold of the glasses all during the long journey from Thorbarden to Tarsus. It was not her place to judge, however, especially when she didn't know all the facts. She had been told to find the Kender and ascertain that he had the spectacles on him. She could report back that he did. Her job was done. But should she allow him to help the knights? No, even Star doesn't want them back, Lilith said to Tass. You can keep them. I can? Tass was thrilled. That's wonderful. Thank you. You can thank your friend, the golden woolly mammoth, said Lilith, smiling. She took out a small book and began to take notes. Now, tell me what you see this time when you look through the lenses. In the back portion of the library, the knights had not resumed their search, but were embroiled in an argument. You did what? Derek demanded, scowling at Brian. I gave the Kender my word of honor as a knight— that I would help rescue Sturm and the others, Brian repeated calmly. You had no right to make such a promise, Derek returned angrily. You know the importance of our mission to recover this dragon orb and take it back to Salamnia. You could put it all in peril. I didn't say anything about you assisting them, Derek, Brian told him. You and Aaron can continue with your search for the dragon orb. Brightblade is a fellow Salamnic and though I only knew him a short time, I consider him a friend. Even if I didn't know him, I would do everything in my power to keep him and his companions from falling into the hands of the enemy. Besides, he added stubbornly, I have now given my word. The measure says it's our duty to thwart and confound our foes, Aaron pointed out, tilting his flask to his mouth, then wiping his lips with the back of his hand. Tell me how we confound our foes by rescuing a half-elf and a dwarf and a counterfeit knight, Derek retorted, but Brian could see that his argument was having some effect. Derek was at least considering his proposal. Brian went back to work, 
giving Derek time to think things through. Their studies were interrupted by Lilith, who came marching the kender along, her hand on his shoulder, giving his hand an occasional slap in a friendly manner when he tried to pluck a book off the shelves. All three knights rose politely to their feet. Yes, mistress, how may we serve you? Derek asked. It's how I can serve you, or rather, how Tasselhoff can serve you. Lilith reached for one of the books in the stack dealing with dragons. Opening the book to a page at random, she moved it near the lantern. Tass, can you read this? Tasselhoff climbed onto a tall stool. He settled himself comfortably and peered at the page. He wrinkled his forehead. You mean all those squiggly lines? No, sorry, Derek grunted. I'd be surprised if he can read it all. Lilith said softly, Tass, I meant for you to put on the special glasses when you read, what we talked about. Oh, yeah, right. Tasselhoff reached his hand into his pocket and fumbled about. I think they're in the other pocket, Lilith whispered. Mistress, we are wasting valuable time. Tasselhoff dove into the correct pocket and came up, glasses in hand. He placed them on his small nose, pinched the nose pieces together to help them stay on, and looked down at the page. It says, the red dragons are the largest of the cro- chrom. He stumbled over the word. Chromatic dragons, and the most feared. Although they disdain humanoids, red dragons may occasionally ally themselves with those who have the same goals and ambitions, which include a lust for power. Red dragons revere Queen Takesis. Let me see that. Derek snatched the book away from Tasselhoff. He stared at it, then shoved it back. He's lying. I can't read a word. But he can, said Lilith triumphantly, with the magical glasses of our chemist. How do you know he's not making it up? Oh, come now, Derek, said Aaron, laughing. Would a Kender or anyone else, for that matter, make up the word chromatic? Derek eyed Tass dubiously. He held out his hand. Let me see those glasses. Tasselhoff glanced at Lilith. She nodded her head, and Tass handed him the glasses, though with obvious reluctance. They're mine, he said pointedly, given to me by a golden, woolly mammoth. Derek attempted to put the glasses on his nose, but they were much too small. He peered at the book through the lenses, practically going cross-eyed to try to focus on the words. Lowering the glasses, he rubbed his eyes and regarded the kender with more respect. He's telling the truth, Derek admitted, sounding astonished beyond belief. I can read the words with those glasses, though I have no idea how. They're magical, said Tass proudly. He quickly plucked the glasses out of Derek's hand. They used to belong to some guy named Arachnid. Our chemist, said Lilith. He was a half-elf sage who lived before the cataclysm. He made several pairs of these glasses and gave them to the aesthetics to use in research. How do they work? Brian asked. We don't really know for certain. It's thought. But she didn't have a chance to finish. A shout interrupted her. Lilith, it's me, Marcus. Excuse me, she said. I sent Marcus to find out about your friends, Tass. This is probably important news. I'll come too, Tass jumped off his stool. You will sit and read, Kender, said Derek. Tass bristled with indignation. Now see here, Sir Shingard, my friends may be in danger, and if they are, they need me, so you can take your book and... Please, Master Burfoot, Brian hastily intervened, we really need your help. 
We can't read these books, and you can. If you could look through them and find anything at all about dragon orbs, we would be deeply in your debt. You remember that I have pledged to help your friends, and I give you my word as a knight that I will do my utmost. You can be of vital service to these knights, Tess, Lilith added gravely. I think the golden woolly mammoth would take it as a personal favor. Well, I guess, said Tess. He eyed Derek balefully, then climbed back up on the stool and, putting his elbows on the table, began to read, his lips moving with the words. Lilith started back to the front of the library to meet with her friend. She had taken only a few steps when she paused, turned back, and gave Brian a dimpled smile. You can come with me if you like, just to make sure I'm not selling your secrets to the enemy. Brian glanced at Derek, who looked very annoyed, but gave a nod. I'm sorry about the way Derek's acting, he said in a low voice as he trailed Lilith. I hope you know that I don't suspect you. I am deeply offended, sir, said Lilith, stopping. I may never get over it. Please, mistress. Brian took hold of her hand. I am truly sorry. Lilith burst out laughing. <laughs> I was teasing. Do you knights always take everything so seriously? Brian flushed deeply. He let go of her hand and started to turn away. Now I'm the one who is sorry, Lilith said. I didn't mean to make sport of you, sir. She found his hand in the shadowy darkness and squeezed it tightly. I'm not, sir, he said. I'm Brian. I'm Lilith, she said softly, pulling him nearer. Tall bookshelves surrounded them, fenced them in and cut them off, separating them from everyone else in the world. Dust clung to them. They had only Lilith's lantern for light, and she set it on the floor in order to take both his hands in both of hers. The two seemed to stand in a pool of candlelit radiance, even as they remained hidden in sweet darkness. Neither was ever sure quite how it happened, but their lips met and touched and kissed and parted and touched again and kissed again. Lilith! Marcus again called out for her. It's important! Just a minute! She called breathlessly, then added softly, We should go, Brian. Yes, we should, Lilith. But neither moved. They kissed again, and then Lilith, with a little sigh, picked up the lantern. Holding hands, they wended their way through the bookshelves, taking their time, warmed by each other's touch. When they neared the front, they paused for one last quick kiss. Brian smoothed his mustaches. Lilith smoothed her tousled hair, and both tried very hard to look perfectly innocent. Rounding a corner of a shelf, they came suddenly upon Marcus, who had grown tired of waiting, and started down an aisle in search of her. Oh, there you are, Marcus said, raising his lantern. Marcus was not at all what Brian had come to expect of an aesthetic. His head wasn't shaved, and he wore ordinary breeches, shirt, and coat, not robes and sandals. He wore a sword, and he had the look of a soldier, not a scholar. Still, Lilith wasn't what Brian had expected in an aesthetic either.